Hello and welcome to episode number one of the Mental Health Marriage. This is a podcast for the spouses and partners of those who are mentally ill. I'm your host, and for the sake of my husband's anonymity, you can call me M. As the spouse of a man with bipolar 2, I will share my story, my struggles, and my insights with you. And I hope to build a community where we can all laugh and cry together at the paradox and irony that mental illness can be. And I hope that we can help each other keep it together and thrive despite the major setbacks. I believe we create our futures and that we can make better lives for ourselves and for our families. So I've had the idea to do this podcast for a couple of years now and I'm finally getting to it. But as those of you listening may know, when your spouse is mentally ill and you're the primary caregiver and sometimes the breadwinner for your family and the one who pretty much does everything, it's definitely hard to find the time. So that's probably why when I was out seeking for a podcast, looking for support for myself, I didn't find anything. So here I am. We'll just go ahead and go with that Gandhi quote, be the change you want to see in the world. I would like to see more support for the spouses of those who are mentally ill. So yeah. Thank you for listening. I thought a good way to start out with episode number one would be just to give you a bit of my story with what uh, my husband and I have dealt with in our journey thus far. So I have been married for seven years and I round up. uh, It's not even quite seven. This December is our anniversary, Uh, but... (laughs) Oh boy, I swear some of those years have felt so long. To me, it feels like I've been married probably about 15 years, just because sometimes the burdens are just so heavy. Um, But it didn't start out this way. So when my husband and I first met, uh, I was graduated, I, I had a good job, and he was still in school. I'm older than him. Great plan. (laughs) and we started dating, and he's just charming and wonderful and super sweet, really good with kids, just not your typical macho guy, and he was really open with me, and he was not ashamed to just step up and be my boyfriend, like, he just had so many great qualities, but um, he did let me know that he had been diagnosed with OCD, a possessive compulsive disorder, and it did start to show its head pretty soon in our relationship, He had been through a string of really short relationships where he would start dating somebody and then he would just come up with a giant list of everything that was wrong with them, which is normal on a small scale for any relationship because you're deciding what you can put up with and what you can't. But he was just pretty extreme in the way that he did this. Um, One example was he got really upset with me and almost broke up with me one time because when he'd offer me something, I'd just say, no instead of no thank you, and this was extremely offensive to his OCD, I guess, because I guess manners were very important to him, but I mean, that's something that if it matters to you, I think it's fine to communicate about it, but he thought that was grounds for ending the relationship, so we actually did break up a couple of times, and I was like, hey, we're not going to be friends. If you're done, you're done. Goodbye, and he he couldn't handle it, and he came crawling back every time, and To me, the coming crawling back showed that he, I don't know, he just seemed really sincere and he knew that it was his illness that was preventing us from having a normal relationship. So he started going to extra therapy and after we'd been dating for about a year, his therapist, pretty much the treatment for OCD is do the opposite of what the voice in your head says. (laughs) So when the voice in his head was telling him to run to the wind, 
he's like, you, it sounds like this girl is the one. His family loved me. Um, I reacted very calmly to all his problems, which I think set me apart from other girls. I had dated a guy before who had some OCD, and I was like, you know, of all the crazy things that women deal with, that's not the worst thing to me. I kind of get it. So I was okay with it. I mean, there were times when it wasn't fun, but I was like, if this is if this is the way that he's crazy, like, I can handle it. And he's, I think the the pros and cons, the pros were in his favor, just with all his good qualities. And so um, his therapist pretty much said, you need to marry this girl. Or, like, or obviously you can break up with her, but you need to marry her and those OCD symptoms should go away. So he took a leap of faith and we got married. And sure enough, the OCD has never come back for him. Our first year of marriage was honestly blissful. A lot of people say that the first year of marriage is so hard. We were very compatible with our personalities. And once it was no longer a question of let's decide if I should leave or stay, he just was great. But then we started graduate school, and around that same time, I became pregnant with our first daughter. I was sort of feeling like in a hurry because I was older. That was probably a dumb idea looking back. But anyway, so we had our first daughter, and he was kind of pretty deep in school, and he started having symptoms of depression. He would say that he got like a brain fog when he studied. He started not sleeping at night. He developed um, restless leg syndrome, which has been the bane of our existence ever since. Um, We all know in the mental health field that diet and exercise and sleep are like the three main ingredients to mental health. So if you're missing out on any of those, it can really take a toll. So with him, he started losing sleep. And it affected his mood and made him feel so low. And he has told me, when I eat, it makes me feel worse. And this never made sense to me. And he told me that when he exercised, it made him feel worse. So in the beginning, I would really fight against that and be like, you have to eat and you have to exercise because how else are you going to get better? But it really just seemed to deplete him even more. And he eventually ended up um, in, in the hospital um, for, for suicidality pretty much. And he was in the first place for, I think only a few days, maybe a little longer. I can't remember. And I had to just carry on with my daughter and with, I was the, um, the breadwinner at this time. So I was working, I was lucky that I was able to work from home. Well, no, I had two jobs back then. So I was, I, yeah, I was teaching, um, at a school. And then I also, um, I'm a music teacher, so I teach music at my home. So I was doing both of those things with the, with my daughter, and he was gone. Luckily, at the time, we lived near family, and his family was really helpful. So, boy, that was really key to getting through these tough times. So he came out of the hospital, and we decided that he needed to take a leave of absence from school, which was really a blow because... I felt so much pressure just financially that I was just counting down the days until he could get a better paying job and just be done with school because the studying was so excruciating and the long hours were just really tough on our relationship and on our family. So he decided to stop working for a while and I think he took like a six month leave of absence which bumped his graduation back a year and that was a really hard pill for me to swallow but obviously... You know, if someone wants to die, that's definitely a sign that they need help. 
So when he was able to stop studying, and he worked 30 hours a week at the time, which was really good. And he seemed to stabilize, and he was doing better. Um, we tried to piece back our relationship a little bit, but this whole time, um, our sex life died. Um, he had always kind of struggled with the medications he was on, but it was definitely worse when the depression is more severe. And at the time, that was a huge problem for me. It would just, I felt so betrayed and unwanted and unloved and just awful. Like, so I pretty much just like shut that part of me down and just pretended like it wasn't there. But if it ever came up, oh, that was a very sensitive subject for me. And I would read books about relationships and about sexuality, trying to like figure out what to do. And all the advice in those books just didn't apply to me because it was usually about how females have such a problem with desire and what you can do about that. And like, no, that is not the problem. Um, having the male be the lower libido partner is definitely more uncommon. And a lot of those books don't even talk about um, side effects of medication. So I, I had him going to his doctors talking about it and they tried putting him on Wellbutrin and nothing really worked. And so I think I just kind of gave up. There was definitely a point where, many points where I considered leaving the marriage, but by that time we already had a child. And I think you could look at it either way, but I think our daughter was a huge blessing to us. I mean, every child is, but um, she was the light in our lives and she made us more committed to our marriage and more committed to being healthy and not passing on the negative effects of this disease to her. Um, she very well may be genetically inclined, but if you have stable people in your life that are able to help you through and help you to not be as scared of it, I mean, that could just really make a huge difference. The way that my husband was raised um, kind of made all of his problems worse. They can't, they, he grew up in a very religious home, and he developed what is called um, religious scrupulosity, where if he wasn't doing everything exactly how the leaders or whatever claimed that you should, then he felt like he was going to go to hell and he wanted to kill himself when he was like nine years old, which is so messed up. <laughs> so that's kind of the beginning of his OCD. So I'm getting deep into it here. but um, So he was on Prozac for his whole life since he was a child, and he thinks that that's why he has so many problems now. Because it just changes the way that your brain works, and now he just doesn't have a normal brain. So, anyway, back to the timeline. So he's in school, he took that leave, and he did eventually go back, and he made it another year in school, and we were getting so close. And then he crashed again and ended up in the hospital again. Same cycle, where he gets restless, he stops sleeping, he stops eating, he can't exercise... And so it's just this really vicious cycle. And so he ended up in a psychiatric hospital for a full week. And this was a better hospital that we went to. And I'll talk more about that in a minute. But he had some really good doctors. And they, this was the first time that they diagnosed him as actually bipolar and not depressed. So he has been diagnosed as bipolar too, which those of you that don't know... Um, usually bipolar is the swing between the manic and the depressive phases, but with him, he has what's called hypomania, 
which is basically just a state of anxiety, and that's a lot of where his restlessness comes from. So he does not feel good, and he does not feel on top of the world when he is, quote, manic. He just feels really terrible. And then the opposite side of that is really long, manic, depressive phases where you are just beyond depressed. I'm sure those of you listening probably know what this is like. I mean, they look like a dead person. They just, his face has no color. They just have no life in them. They never smile. They never laugh. And with him, he kind of goes through phases where he, he, he does have phases where he sleeps too much, which I know is very common for depression. But with him, it's like he's exhausted and tired, but he still can't sleep. So he just lays there like the living dead for sometimes weeks at a time. So this is, this is where we were when he went to the hospital for the second time. So they diagnosed him with bipolar 2, and they put him on um, Lamictal, which he had never been on before, which is a mood stabilizer. And then they decided to do um, electroconvulsive therapy on him. So this is an outpatient treatment where they sedate you, and then they cause a seizure in your brain. And this is supposed to form new neural pathways. And this is pretty much the most extreme treatment for depression. And so it causes memory loss and you're not allowed to drive. Um, it's pretty much out of the question to work during the time when you're getting these treatments because you're kind of a vegetable. So his mom and I took turns taking him to these treatments. And we had gone to seven of them which is pretty high, before we started seeing any difference. And boy, we were on the last string of our hope and not knowing what we were going to do. But I think on the eighth treatment, it suddenly snapped him out of it. And he got color back in his face. He suddenly started sleeping at night. And once you start sleeping, you can start getting everything else under control. He started eating more. He, got, he gets so skinny when he's in these phases, and it's really scary. So... Anyway, so we kept doing ECT, and I think overall he ended up with 14 rounds, and things were a lot better, and I had a renewed hope for our marriage and for the rest of our lives, and um, he enrolled back in school. We started having a sex life again, and therefore got pregnant with our second child, which was on purpose. Sounds insane. Was insane, but was on purpose. <laughs> so we got pregnant with our second daughter, and he graduated, which was probably the happiest day of my life. <laughs> and then we got a job and because we're idiots, we decided to take a job far away, which he felt like he didn't have a choice in because the place where we are from um, has multiple pharmacy schools. And so the market's kind of saturated. So we felt like we had to move. And I think also there was just kind of that desire to have a fresh start and to not have everyone around you know that you're mentally ill. And so I can totally understand why he wanted to move. I just like adventure, so I think that was what I was thinking. So we ended up moving to a smaller town, which now I know I am not a small town person, so I will not be doing that again. But we moved away, so we had a new baby, new job, um, new house, no friends and family, and it was the middle of the winter, and he hadn't started working yet. He had to take all his licensure tests. So this was another really low point. And so he got to the point where had we been back where we're from, we probably would have hospitalized him again. It was just all the same things. But somehow he pushed through it. Um, it was really hard to convince him to take his test because he kind of was being OCD about it. He thought he had to know everything on earth in order to take the test. Um, so pretty much his, I called his mom and I'm like, you got to talk to him. 
And so she said, you just have to take it. You have to take it. And if you don't pass, it's okay. Um, So he took it and he passed his first try. And after he passed, he started doing a little better just because that stress was off of his plate. But then um, he started his job and I'm probably not going to share what he does for a living, um, but it is in the medical field, which is ironic. And so it's very long hours and he has to be on his feet all day. And that's terrible for restlessness. So he, again, stops sleeping at night and gets really, really bad again. And he never really recovered from the last bad spout that we had. So he ended up leaving his job after only three months. And so we were definitely not knowing what we should do because since it's a smaller town, there weren't that many opportunities. And he wasn't well. So I'm like, you're not even allowed to go look for a job right now because you need to get yourself better. But um, he... He has told me that electroconvulsive therapy is not an option for him anymore now that he's licensed with what he does. He says that the state we live in, there is a law that says if you do ECT, then you can't do your job because of the memory loss that it causes. So this puts us in a real bind, you guys. It's, I mean, if it is something that helps, like, you know, it it might realistically be something he needs to do once a year or, you know once every six months or something. I don't think he always needs to do 14 rounds of it, but they did say that if you backslide, that even one treatment can really just help you get back on track. But apparently that's not an option with the job he has, which is super messed up. Um, So anyway, he takes three months off. I get an extra job. Luckily, our families are able to help us financially, which I know not everyone has that, so I was extremely fortunate that way. Eventually, he starts feeling just kind of bored and like he's ready to try again with work and by some miracle he got a really great job in a and he has to commute 50 minutes but we ended up not having to move and not sell our house which I think was good because that just would have added to the stress even more so we got to stay where we were living which I don't want to stay where we are forever but for now it's fine um I think before we make any other changes in our lives, if we decide we want another kid or if we decide we want to move. I just do not feel okay about doing any of those things until he's been stable for a long period of time. So he has had his job for the last year and he's stuck it out and he likes the company he works for. He likes the people he works with. He has a really good manager. So all those things are really good. And I think it's helped his self-esteem just actually having a real adult job and getting benefits, getting paid time off, being able to provide for his family. So in that way, he is doing better in some senses. From about January to May of this year, I thought everything was great. He seemed really good to me. And some things were more normal. So... Yeah, I thought it was good. And he comes to me in May and tells me he's felt awful the whole year. He just didn't tell me about it. And this came as a real blow to me because it just felt like nothing was real. And it made me feel kind of hopeless because is he ever able to feel good? Is he ever able to enjoy our relationship? Is he able to enjoy life? Ever since he first became depressed, he's never done any of his hobbies anymore, even after he was better. Like when he got ECT the first time, it's like he didn't have time to do hobbies or make friends just because he was still in school. But none of that has come back, so that's a big teller. (sighs) 
pretty much his joy is being a dad. He still managed to be the most amazing dad in the world despite all of this, which is wonderful because I want my children to have a loving father. Um, but it also is it hurts sometimes because they get all of his positive attention and then oftentimes there's nothing left for me. And that is so lonely and so isolating and really discouraging. It's hard to... I don't know. I think anything with the label normal in front of it is a dangerous word, like a normal relationship or a normal life, because honestly, that doesn't exist. But I think our expectations of what marriage is and what it should look like can really be killers of joy. So I have had to just totally redefine what all of this means and what I should expect and mostly where to derive my own happiness so I've been on quite the journey. I've been mostly talking about what my husband's been through, but this whole while I've been growing and learning and having some crazy experiences. So right when my husband graduated, um, I was at the the end of my rope anyway. I I guess I was I was doing okay in some senses, but I was still discouraged and still kind of wounded from everything that we had been through so far. And um, suddenly, out of the blue, my younger sister passed away. And I just felt like the whole, any foundation that I had left in me was just ripped from under me at this time. And I questioned even wanting to bring another child into the world because I pretty much started to define the world as a series of unfortunate events, kind of, just what bad thing is going to happen to me next and am I going to live through it? And I was starting to feel like if this keeps up for the rest of my life, I can't live through it. Like I cannot keep doing this with so little joy in between. And like, but I feel like I have to hold it together because I have children. I mean, had I been not a mother, I don't, I know I wouldn't be married to my husband still. Like I just like the things that we've been through, it wouldn't have been worth it to me, which, which is hard, hard to say, but I think it's true. I, I don't think I would have stuck it out. Um, but I have anyway. So my sister passed away and this just was the, it, it shut me down. I, I went into a depressive phase that lasted for almost a year and I, I kept, for me, when I'm depressed, it's just I keep myself busy. I am not the kind of depressed that stays in bed all day. I just busy, busy, busy and try to ignore how I feel. But that just means that your feelings and thoughts that you're having are never dealt with. So probably almost probably nine months after my sister died, I decided that my husband and I needed to go to couples therapy. And this is so typical. But it's like you take your husband to the therapist and pretty much say fix him, <laughs> which is somewhat legitimate on my end because he's clearly broken and not, not to any fault of his own. But I think that was my hope. Like if you can fix him, then I will be okay. And so we went to a few sessions and it basically was just me unloading, unloading, unloading. And my therapist kind of quickly helped me realize that I was the one who needed therapy the most. I mean, my husband needs to be treated for his illness and he needs to be going to his psychiatrist and he needs to constantly be adjusting his meds. But I don't think he has any severe um, 
distorted views of the world. He's a pretty like level-headed guy considering all he's been through. But so anyway, I started going to therapy on my own and this was life-changing for me. There's there were so many things that I didn't realize that I thought that I didn't have to think anymore. I had some issues from my childhood that I didn't realize were even there, but they were affecting me hugely. Um, he helped me kind of walk myself through the grief of losing my sister, which if any of you out there are dealing with any kind of similar loss, I mean, that is such a heavy burden to bear, especially if you're also bearing the burden of caring for someone who's mentally ill. I mean, it is too much to do on your own, so stop it. <laughs> do not do it on your own. You need help. Um, and there is help out there. I was so fortunate to find an amazing therapist who was so good at his job and so compassionate and so good at helping me see the other side of things without making me feel like an idiot. Like, he's just amazing. So, um, I have grown a lot and I have kind of changed the way that I look at things and we are still kind of deep in it. Um, my husband's going through a bad, bad stage the last couple weeks. He hasn't been sleeping. He has no energy. Um, he just kind of pushes forward and he still goes to work. And for us, it's kind of a cycle of he wakes up super bad, just not good. And usually by the evening, he can be fairly pleasant, but he's still really tired. Um, let me state now that he has never been physically or verbally abusive to me. So that is a huge factor in my decision that I've made to stay. So, and also let me say that I am not a professional and my situation is different than yours and everyone needs to come to their own decision and having a professional help you make that decision can be good, but also I think we know what to do deep in our hearts if we're just brave enough to listen. Sometimes we don't want to know what the answer is or we know what it is, but we want it to be different. And so trust, trust your heart, guys. Um, I want to share with you some things that I've learned. And one of the number one things my therapist taught me when I started going was that you have to separate the person from the illness. I think I would say things in my head like, you are such a a, a killjoy or you are so just you're you're so depressed you are so grumpy you don't find me physically attractive you know things like that which uh, but instead whenever I would complain about something like that it's like no that's the depression that is the illness manifesting in his body that is not who he is that is not who you married if he was well he would definitely not be acting this way I've heard accounts from other people where sometimes that's hard to separate because <laughs> it's like, no, he's just an asshole and you need to know that that would be there whether the illness was or not. But since I was lucky enough to know what he was like before this happened, I know that that's not him. So that has helped a lot, especially on the days when it's really bad. I, I can't make that a part of him. Another thing is that you can't take it personally. So this has been huge for me as far as our sex life goes. Um, it's not that he doesn't want to have that kind of a relationship with me. And it's not that he doesn't find me attractive. It's, it's not that. It's a physical problem. And we are still... I think we've found that there are things that you can do that help. And, but it does take a major effort 
which is probably normal in all relationships. I think for us, though, it just takes even more effort. So if we don't make a, make it a priority, it dies so quick. So, yeah. So don't take it personally. Another thing is, with his restlessness, he doesn't sleep in the same room as me anymore. And this was really painful. You don't go into a marriage like, yeah, I'm going to sleep alone for the rest of my life. <laughs> like, that sounds really terrible. And if you dwell on it that way, that can just make you so sad and depressed. But for me, I'm kind of just like, you know what? It is what it is. It has nothing to do with how he feels about me. It has everything to do with the fact that he doesn't sleep. You can't expect someone to, like, stay in the bed with you awake all night as they shake and quiver with, with, um symptoms of restlessness. So for me, I'm like, well, I guess I can stay up reading my book as long as I feel like it. I'm never going to bother you. And that's fine. And you know, I hope that someday it'll be different, but there's definitely phases like this year. I've slept alone most of the year and it sucks, but it's also fine at the same time. So yeah, this next one that I've learned is probably the biggest thing for me. And this is setting boundaries and making decisions ahead of time. So for me, I had a huge problem of any time he would get particularly bad, I would go into a spiral because I would always go to that fight or flight reaction. And for me, my first instinct is to get out. So I would think about getting divorced and thinking about running away and think about how I would support my daughter by myself I would obsess over thoughts like this every time he got bad. And it wasn't really realistic to the situation necessarily. Sometimes he would not be as bad as he looked or it would pass quickly and then I'd be like, oh, I guess it's fine now. So the thing that has helped me is it was hard to come to this, but I I was able to really concretely decide that I'm going to stay in this marriage And a lot of it has to do with my daughters. Um, A lot of it has to do with the fact that I do love him and I have compassion for him. And I know what me leaving would do to him. And I just feel like I'm not the kind of human being that can inflict that kind of pain and suffering on someone else. But with that, let me say there is a boundary there. So my boundary is... I will stay committed to this relationship and I will do everything I can to help you as long as you are trying to help yourself. So if he stops seeking treatment, if he becomes abusive, if he gives up and doesn't try to be a good dad anymore, it's over. And and that is very clear in my mind. So I think if there ever does come a day when I need to leave, I will know it. And I will know that I've already made that decision. And you know, I think, I think his family would understand. I mean, it would be, it would still be really awful and I hope it doesn't come to that, but that is where I draw the line. And I think it is important that we have a line because, you know, I want to be optimistic and I think people can find the right doses of medication and they can be mostly okay. I don't think it's realistic to expect that they're going to get better because it is a chronic illness. And I, I do expect to have down phases So that's realistic, but I also, you know, some people in their own life, and I don't want my kids to be around if it ever comes to that, and I really, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure it doesn't, but anyway, so that boundary and that decision has been huge for me, so now when he is really not doing well, 
I don't spiral like that anymore. It's still hard for me, and I still kind of have to grieve the hard phases, but it's more productive in the things that I try to do. So another thing that helps me get through the really bad days is just to live in the moment. I've gotten into yoga and meditation, and just mindfulness meditation is probably the the best for me. I'm not great at sitting and meditating for a long period of time, but being mindful has really helped because sometimes you everything that's wrong with how you feel starts in your mind and so me deciding that I need to be a single mom suddenly and what am I going to do what am I going to do like that's not really based on reality in the moment in the moment I could be standing in my beautiful sunny kitchen preparing a beautiful meal for my beautiful child and everything's fine (laughs) so I think that's really huge I'll kind of I want to wrap it up in a minute here but I will say one of the last things is you can't use their illness to hold you back from your own dreams. I felt very stuck and unmotivated for many years, which is common to, to moms anyway um, at this time of life. But for me, it was pretty severe and I knew something was wrong and it took therapy to crack it open for me. But pretty much I'm not doing anything that I'm passionate about because... I was using him as an excuse. It was like, well, I can't do that because I don't even know what tomorrow's going to look like because this illness. And it sounds like a legitimate excuse. And there are some days when you probably won't get much done besides helping everyone hold it together. But I have carved out time for myself to start to follow my own dreams. And I'm building a business. And it's based on something I love to do. And doing this podcast is another step out for me. This is a big deal for me that I'm starting this. Um, First of all, just the vulnerability aspect of it. And then just making time to do something that will help me and that will help others. I feel much more empowered than I used to. And even if I don't reach thousands of people, even if I reach one, I think that's worth it to me to do it. And I think I've been able to come to this because I have rekindled a belief in a higher power. I think I was borderline atheist for all of these years just because of how terrible I felt. I just didn't see how there could be a God seeing so much suffering in the world. But I've really come around to understand that suffering is, well, pain is inevitable, but suffering is a choice. So I've kind of stepped into almost a Buddhist mentality, but I do believe in a higher power that is nothing but love and light and that we can connect with that and fill ourselves up and that we were made for greatness and we just have to pursue it and to believe that. So just that belief has really propelled me forward in my life and I can see a huge difference in the way that I feel and in the way that I act. So I feel like I've rambled long enough. Um, I'll share more with you on the day-to-day journeys My hope for this podcast is that I can connect with you guys. I want you to send me emails, tell me your stories. If you don't feel comfortable coming on the show with me via like a Skype interview, um, I would love if you would just write it out and send it to me as an email and I'll read it. Um, You can be anonymous, you can be not anonymous, it's up to you. Because I just, I want to hear, I want to hear all of it because there's perspective we can gain from each other. And just simply being heard is so huge in the process of healing 
So I'm hoping that I can offer that to you guys. And thank you for listening to me. And um, the email for this podcast is mentalhealthmarriage at gmail.com. So that's mentalhealthmarriage at gmail.com. So send me an email and call me M. And thank you for tuning in. And I hope you guys have a wonderful day. Thank you.